So, uh, Abby and I and, and our kids, we just got back from Indiana. We were there a couple weeks ago as well. Many of you uh, know, if you don't know, uh, my mother-in-law is, is uh, battling cancer, and, and so we're up there quite a bit trying to uh, just spend quality time. And uh, just as by way of update, uh, she is, uh, she's living life, and uh, she gets tired a little bit, uh, which is actually good news for me because I get tired uh, pretty early as well, and so, uh, so I don't feel left out when I go to bed early. So, uh, so but... Uh, it's been good to, to spend time with her. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, there was actually a card on, uh, on, on her kitchen counter when we got there this last time, and, and she asked us, well, who is this? I don't know this person. It was one of you guys. So thanks for, for, for caring for her, even though uh, she doesn't know you by name. But a couple times ago when we were in Indiana, um, we went to the Louisville Slugger Bat Factory, which is right across the river from where we grew up uh, in Indiana. And so we went there with the family, and I'd been there before, uh, but it was really cool. They've done some different things to to renovate and and to make it a a more interactive experience. You can pitch a ball now, and you can watch a a 90-mile-an-hour pitch, which is terrifying, and and, uh, all these fun things you can hold baseball bats that were used in games from Mickey Mantle and Ernie Banks and Ricky Henderson, who was, who was kind of my idol growing up, King Griffey Jr. Uh, and uh, it was really a neat experience, and it reminded me just how much I loved baseball growing up. Growing up in southern Indiana, this was your athletic track if you were a young boy. You played baseball until elementary school, and then you played basketball after that. It was a requirement that kicked you out of the state if you didn't take that track, and so uh, there was no soccer or anything like that, and I still think I could have been pretty good at soccer, uh, but I didn't have a chance to play in that league, which is probably what everybody thinks about a sport they didn't get a chance to play, uh, but, uh, but it was baseball, and I, I loved baseball. I slept with my baseball glove. I mean, it's totally cliche, but I did. I I slept with it under my pillow, and, and I collected baseball cards, thousands of baseball cards. If I got any money at all, we would go to uh, the, the, the flea market. Again, Indiana, guys. This is, so we'd go to the flea market, and I'd buy, I'd buy baseball cards, and I'd order them, and I'd stack them, and all these things. And when I was a kid, the, the most sought-after baseball card, the one that everybody wanted, was the 1989 Upper Deck rookie card of King Griffey Jr. That was it. If you got that card, you were like a hero in your community. And so that was the one that I wanted. That's, that's what I was after. And one time I was at my grandmother's house, my grandmother and grandfather's house, and uh, it was me and my brother, and uh, they lived in Whiteland, Indiana, and I know there's some irony in that name, but that's what it was called, Whiteland, Indiana, and so we were there, and, uh, and, and my grandmother's like, why don't you go down to the Piggly Wiggly, that's a real thing, and, uh, it was, and, and just do something there. I don't, she didn't even send us for anything. She was like, just go to the store, and uh, I don't even know if she thought we had money or what, but she was like, get out of my house, and so anyway, so like, get, we got going, and it was like a two-mile walk, you know, because the olden days, and so we walked down the street and got to the Piggly Wiggly, I bought a pack of baseball cards. They came in packs, and you didn't know what was inside it until you bought it. And I opened it up, and inside was a King Griffey Jr. 1989 Upper Deck rookie card. And I was now a hero, and I was so happy. And I got this thing that I wanted so badly, and I was so proud of it. And I was showing it off all, all over the place, which ended up being a bad deal because a couple years later, it got stolen uh, out of my house. It was probably one of my friends or my brother's friends, which I know is kind of slanderous, but they weren't that good of people. So, um, so it, never, it never showed up again. And so, but, but at the time, I was like, well, maybe I misplaced it. 
And so I would rifle through all my cards and I would get through you know, boxes, the whole closet. And it was like, well, maybe I missed it. So I'd go through it again and I'd stay up late at night flipping through, trying to find it. My eyes started to, to shrink back in my head and get these bags under my eyes. And I was just repeating like my precious. I was going full golem on this card. I wanted it so bad, my precious. Uh, and uh, like I said, it never turned up, but I just wanted it back so badly. We all experience this. Even as adults, there are things that, that when we lose them, we realize, oh man, that was important. Uh, so like your keys, like maybe you've, you've just left enough time to get out of the door and if all the lights are right, you can make it to the meeting and, but you, don't, you can't find your keys and you freak out and you're like, oh my gosh, this is gonna ruin my whole day and then I'm gonna get fired and then I'm gonna be living on the street. Like this isn't gonna work at all. I, this happened to me recently. My keys were in a pair of shoes on the top shelf of my closet. Why? No idea. Uh, but they, that's where they were and I found them. And, uh, it, but you're like hunting for them. Or your cell phone, you ever lose your cell phone? That's a tough one as well. You're like, oh my gosh, how am I gonna function today without my cell phone? And then you get other people to help you look for it. Like I'll be like, Abby, help me retrace my steps sometimes. And so you, it's like, hey, other people, can you help me? And then one time I was looking for my cell phone and, uh, and, and the person on the phone was like, you're holding it in your hand because you called me to help you look for your phone, you doofus. And I was like, there it is, found it, I'm good. Uh, but you desperately want to get it back, right? Uh, Luke 15, Jesus tells a series of stories. We're going to look at one of three stories. This is him talking about something he desperately wants to get back, something that's been lost that he wants to get back, that he'll do anything to get back. In the series, we're looking at parables. Parables are stories. Stories, but they're a certain kind of story. They were very common in Jesus' day. Jesus didn't invent parables. Uh, he told 39 of them throughout the gospel, or 37 of them throughout the gospel. Uh, and, and, and there are these specific kind of stories that, that speak to the culture of the day. So Jesus lived in this, in this rural environment, so there's, a lot of his stories are about farming or different things like that. So for us, it can be difficult for us to understand the analogies or the stories because we don't live in that context. And so it takes a little extra time for us to walk through them. That's why we're doing this series. But these parables aren't just for the cultural context. That's what makes parables different. They're not just for the people they were spoken to. They have a universal quality to them. So they're as important today as they were 2,000 years ago. That's another reason why we're doing this series. And if you took all 37 of those parables, you piled them up, and you said, what is this about? What is Jesus talking about with these stories? The answer you would get is they're about the kingdom of God. And you hear me say it pretty much every week. I said it just a few minutes ago. God has invited us to use our time and our talent and our resources to participate with him in building a kingdom, right? But the thing about joining him in this kingdom effort See, Jesus said he came to bring a whole new thing, a new way of being human altogether. But to join him doesn't actually start with, with our heads. It doesn't start with knowledge. It starts with our hearts. That's where parables hit us. They hit us in our hearts if, they, if we allow that to happen. So that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to look specifically at the parable of the lost coin from Luke chapter 15. I once heard it said, if you want to know how much God cares about you, and you want to know how much God cares about everyone, all people, read Luke 15, and then read it again, and then read it again until it sinks in. We're going to read it once. Hopefully it'll sink in for us. Starting in verse 8 of Luke 15, if you have it in your bulletins or you can pull up your, your phone or, or just listen along. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This parable to understand what Jesus is, is getting at here, we have to understand a little bit more about this coin analogy. And I think we're gonna unpack a little bit of the nuances of why he uses a coin as an analogy, why he tells the story this way, but I think we're gonna see two things. We're gonna see that Jesus is inviting us, this kingdom thing he's inviting us into has to do with us uh, being people who go looking and people who, who, who are celebrating. Go looking and celebrating in that order. So we're gonna unpack that together. But, but a little bit about, about this coin. The first thing about this coin or this story, the value of the coin doesn't seem to match up with the energy that was expended in searching for it. The parable says the woman has 10 coins. She loses one of them. She essentially goes in this process of turning the house upside down looking for it. So imagine you have 10 quarters and you lose one. You're just going about your day and you lose one. You're like, oh, I thought I had 10, now I have nine. Wouldn't we all stop everything we were doing take the couch, you know, pull the couch cushions out, look under everything and get our family like, hey, look for the quarter. I've lost the quarter. We would all do that, right? No. Why? Because it's just a quarter. It's not that significant. You'd probably just be like, oh, well, no big deal. Maybe I'll find another one uh, along the way. See, we don't expend a lot of energy on things that aren't significant. And it's actually a little bit jarring when people expend a lot of energy on things that are insignificant. A couple years ago, uh, my family and I, we were at a festival and it was a arts and crafts festival for, for kids. It was really fun. They had a bounce house, but because I'm a mean dad, I was like, no bounce house. We're doing crafts. And so uh, my daughter decided to boycott fun that day because of my bad bounce house decision. And so uh, there are all these booths of different crafts you could do. I was like, you want to do that? She's like, no. You want to do that? No. Do you want to do that? No. But she did have her eyes set on one particular booth that I don't understand how this thing came together at all. It was as though everybody else had prepped for weeks and then somebody, the morning of the event, uh, went to him and was like, hey, you're going to have to have a booth. And he's like, I don't know anything about arts and crafts. And they're like, it's fine. And so it was just a table. It didn't have a tablecloth or an organization or anything. And it was just sticks, literally things that you could be like, they're right there. And then just put them on this table and then some ribbon. And the person was like, a stick can be anything. And I'm like, yeah, that's a fact, but uh, that's not very fun. Uh, but anyway, Eden was into it. And so she grabs a stick and she puts a, a ribbon on the outside and she's like, I have a magic wand. And I'm like, good job, that was creative. And so she starts casting spells on everybody at this festival. She's like, you know, you're a, you're a horse, you're a warrior, you're a this, you're a that. And then finally she gets to me and she's like, you're a frog. And I'm like, that's mean, but I guess the bounce house thing's really sticking with you. And so she, she had fun with it that day and we got home. And she was like, I, this is special, so I need to put it in the center of the living room. Now, uh, I'm a bit particular about things, and I don't necessarily love sticks in the middle of the living room. So I was like, Eden, is there any way that the stick could not be there? And she starts to cry. I mean, I, I, I was just like, could you move the stick? And she's like, and, and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And she goes, it's so important to me. And I'm like, it's a stick. Right. And so, uh, so like she's crying and I'm upset and everybody's upset. And so I'm like, I love my daughter, and so I take the stick, uh, and I'm like, Eden, uh, I get it. This is special to you. And I took it, and I snapped it in half, and I threw it away. No, I didn't do that. I didn't. I didn't. That would be awful, but a couple of you thought I would do something like that. 
No, I said, can we come to a compromise? Maybe the stick, after a 24-hour period of enjoying the living room, could live out on the patio. That's like an indoor-outdoor environment. It could be near the other sticks, but still special. And so we worked out an agreement there, but it's just a stick, right? Luke 15 is just a coin. It's not that significant. The coin that Jesus refers to here is actually a drachma. It's an ancient uh, currency. Uh, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And so you have to go outside of the New Testament to figure out how much a drachma is worth. Is it actually significant? Because maybe the coin is worth a whole lot. Maybe that's why the, the lady goes searching for it in the story. Well, one commentator that I looked at said it was worth a fraction of a penny. It's not much at all. Another said 18 or 19 cents, also not that significant. Another one said you could buy a portion of a sheep with a drachma. So sorry about that sheep. Uh, but you could buy a portion of a sheep. Uh, the other, uh, another one said you could buy an entire ox with a drachma. So there are these huge discrepancies on how much a drachma is worth, but it kind of makes sense. Supply and demand in the ancient world, depending on what environment you were in, you could purchase different things with this. So if you ask this question, if you start with the question, well, how much is the coin worth? The answer really seems to be it depends. Remember, Jesus is telling us a story about kingdom about a new way of being human, about a new thing that he brings into the world. When Jesus refers to this coin, he's wanting us to think about people. And this drachma, I think, is a perfect illustration of how we think about people. Because there seem to be really varying opinions on how much people are worth. Just watch the news. And so it seems Jesus here is, is telling us something about how he feels about all people, even surprising people. It's important to note that Jesus tells this story as a response to a statement. So a statement is made and then Jesus launches into these stories to respond to that statement. The statement is this, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saw Jesus and they said, this man welcomes sinners and he dines with them. So Jesus responds with these three stories. It seems he's trying to tell us those that live outside of God's will, that aren't living God's best, the ones that he came to be close to, they actually deserve to be invited in. They actually matter. They're worth going and looking for. See, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the overwhelming thought, now, by the way, this is important. These are church people, Pharisees and teachers of the law, church people. So the thought of the church people of the day were that the way to be in favor with God is to live a holy life, a life that meticulously keeps the laws and the commands. And it's not like God doesn't appreciate that, doesn't want that for us, because that's God's best. He wants us to follow his laws and commands. But what came next is you have to keep your distance from those that don't live that way because their lack of holiness might actually rub off on you and make you unacceptable to God. So the strategy was stay away from the sinners, lest they rub off on us. See, there's this way of living life that says, you know what, distance yourself from others who aren't right because you matter most. And you being right and doing things the right way, that's all that matters most. So if you have to forget everybody else, just forget everybody else. And we can say, you know what, they're the worst. These Pharisees and these teachers of the law, how could they be like that? But our tendency at times can be to mimic that type of behavior. When we become followers of Jesus, maybe we grew up in the church or came along a little, a little bit later, but when you're following Jesus, you want to live in a way that honors and reflects his character. That's a good thing. And so you move away from things that are, that are negative, 
that, that are bad, that, that, that hurt you and hurt others, that's also a good thing. But then over time, that can lead us actually away from compassion and towards a posture that says, stay away and keep out those that aren't living the right way lest we get infected. And it can lead otherwise good people to see others just as their problems and their issues. The real flaw here is that that's not a gospel to the lost. That's not good news to the lost because it has nothing to say to somebody who isn't already home. So Jesus in this parable, he's forcing a confrontation with that type of thinking. He's saying something radically different. He's saying the love of God doesn't actually wait for people to return. The love of God goes after people. See, there's that other way, but the Jesus way is to move towards others because of how much they're worth. And in that way, the sacrifice of Jesus makes a lot of sense. He came to live and love and die and rise again so that we could be back home, so that there was a way for us. He came looking for us, and it makes sense because of how valuable he says we are. If there's any doubt about that, about how much Jesus cares about people being brought back home to the love and, 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 and hope and joy and peace of the gospel, the end of the gospel of, of Matthew should actually clear that up. His last words, after his resurrection, he goes out looking for the disciples and he finds them. And he says these words, all authority in heaven and earth was given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And surely I'll be with you to the ends of the age. That's Jesus' last words. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven. I'm using it to send you to go looking for people because they matter. See, the church people were right. Jesus did invite Sinners. The problem was they saw themselves as something other than that. They distanced themselves from Jesus because they couldn't create space in their hearts for people who didn't live by the rules, who didn't look the part. And they missed being near Jesus because of it. So how do you view people? How do you view people that don't live up to your standards? How do you view people that don't live the right way? How do you view people that don't believe the right things? Do you say tough? Get yourself together. And when you do, I'd love to talk. If we do, if we live that way, tough, get yourself together. When you get yourself together, I'd love to talk. If we live that way, their outward sin of commission, their doing the wrong thing is matched by our sin of omission, leaving undone what is good and what is right. And we are just as out of bounds. Another aspect of this coin analogy that's important for us to understand this, this call to go looking, the coin didn't lose itself. A coin can't lose itself. It wasn't the coin's actions. It didn't walk away. It's different from the other two parables in this triplet. The, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one, the one, the sheep had wandered away and the shepherd goes and finds it. That's one of the parables. The other is the prodigal son the son walks away from the loving father and the father waits for his return. But the coin didn't walk away. Coins can't do that. See, everyone is a product of their own environment, their own story, their own successes and failures and the successes and failures of, of other people as well. 
Here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't take responsibility for their own actions. I'm a big fan of taking responsibility for your own actions. Ask my kids. But I am saying that there's some compassion, some perspective that should be brought to this. Let me try to land this a little bit. I heard a statistic recently that said over 90% of felony cases all over the country, over 90% are committed by defendants who grew up in a fatherless home. 90%. Again, I'm not saying if you've broken the law, you shouldn't be responsible for those actions. I think you should be. What I'm saying is when we hear a statistic like this, if there's not some sense of a, of a correlation between things that happen beyond our control and our understanding of our own brokenness, we're missing something. Sometimes our brokenness does have something to do with other people. We have a campus in the 33rd Street Jail, and I love it. Those are our brothers and sisters. But if we don't go into that environment, into their environment where they currently are and into their stories without some level of perspective and some level of compassion, we shouldn't be there. In our regroup ministry where we had 25 graduates, there's a, a common phrase and I actually love it so much. It's not all your fault that you got here, but it's your fault if you stay here. That's the type of compassion that we can bring to people's stories. It seems Jesus wants us to consider that maybe those who are lost are lost because no one cared enough that they weren't. I remember the moment when I became open to the idea of following Jesus. I wasn't following Jesus yet, but I was open to the idea of following Jesus. I grew up in a, in a home. My, my parents uh, divorced when I was eight. If statistics bear out, half of us in this room have a similar story to that. And by age 19, I was trying to figure out who I was going to be, who I was going to listen to, what I was going to value. I was lost. I was wandering. Sometimes my value system would shift minute to minute to minute just so I'd fit in, just so someone would tell me I was worth something, just so I, I could hear, you know what, you're good at, at this. I was lost. And then this little church in southern Indiana that had been around for a couple hundred years invited me into a place I didn't deserve to be. They invited me on a mission trip to Guatemala. Now, again, I wasn't a follower of Jesus at this time, maybe a fan at best, but definitely not a follower. But they invited me anyway. It was a construction trip. They were building an orphanage. I didn't know anything about construction. So I wasn't a follower of Jesus, and I didn't know anything about construction. There was really no reason for me to be there, but they invited me anyway. They included me anyway, even though I didn't have anything to offer. That invitation started to open me up to the idea that maybe God really does love. Maybe he really does include. Maybe, maybe God really does invite people in. It was an entirely different economy than I'd ever experienced in my life. The economy I'd experienced in my life is if you are good enough, you're welcome in the room. And if you are not good enough, so long. This was totally different. These people were telling me that I mattered. Not because I was good enough, not because I'd lived the right way, not because I had all the right skills. They were telling me I mattered because God said so. And they wanted to communicate that. And that changed my life. Is there someone you need to tell or show that they matter? Because it might change their life. This is at the heart of really why we came here. Nine years ago, we became a multi-site church. We weren't multi-site before that. We were one church, our Herndon location, and, and we started to ask questions about how do we continue to reach people with the hope and the help of, of the gospel. 
And so we opened this campus because people matter. That's it. And we wanted to bring the truth of Jesus closer to people. We didn't want to be a group of people who looked around the room and said, yeah, I think this is it. I think we're good. I think we've got our community. I think we're set. No, we want to be people who remind each other as often as we can that we're here to open as many doors as possible for people to experience the truth of the gospel. Another thing about the coin and this understanding, this call to go looking, there's a danger, there's a caution in this parable. The danger is this, that a coin over time has less likelihood of being pursued. It gets buried under a pile of work or it gets on the floor and scooted to the back in a dusty corner somewhere. And it's not that the value has changed, it's just that the focus on it has changed. The danger is you forget how much the coin is worth. And the implication is that in our busyness, in our schedules, in our agenda, probably good agendas, we can ignore people that should never be ignored. We can forget the call to go looking. One of my favorite memory, probably my favorite memory of the last nine years of, of the Waterford campus. Before we were here, uh, before we opened this building, we worshiped in Lawton Childs Elementary School for nine months. It was supposed to be zero months, and then it was supposed to be three months, and then it ended up being nine months. So we were in this elementary school, and uh, it was an elementary school cafeteria. That's where we worshiped, and it was exactly like that. There was the linoleum tile floors, and it smelled like pizza and, and bleach, and there were these two columns right in the front of the room. So honestly, in all seriousness, to experience a worship service, you'd be doing this kind of part of the time, and like, oh, the guitar player's playing, I gotta watch that. Like, that's where we worshiped. It was not convenient or easy or nice to be a community that worshiped there. But one of my fondest memories is you had to walk around the hallway and then enter in the back of the cafeteria to then uh, look at the stage. And so I would stand in the very back of the room as long as I could, even when service had still started, and I would watch people come in and I'd wave at them so I didn't feel weird and hi, good, welcome. But what I was doing is we were only about 120 people. We all knew each other. And so what I would watch for and just be overwhelmed by every single time is when I saw someone I knew walking next to someone I didn't know. I was blown away by that. It was not that nice to worship there. It wasn't like a great worship experience. But those people believed that God was doing something in their lives, at least in part through, through Summit, that they wanted to invite him into, even if it smelled like pizza and bleach. I love that. And when you hear that story, if you hear it as, as nostalgia, or you hear it as like, oh, that's so good, that's part of our history, I think we're missing something. And we might not be seeing people the way Jesus sees people. We might not be valuing them the way that he does and how desperately he wants to find them. Remember, this is a parable about kingdom the type of people that we are called to be. So this story is inviting us to change our thinking so that we go looking for people who need to know how much they're loved. But there's this second part of it as well. There's the go looking, but there's also the celebrating. This woman turns the house upside down. She finds the coin, and then she does this really surprising thing. She throws a party. And I found my coin. Everybody come over and let's, let's talk about it. And then Jesus gives us an explanation. He says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. If the heavens rejoice, man, we should celebrate as well. We come in contact with things every single day that are not worth celebrating. Loss of a job. 
difficulty at home, loss of a loved one, maybe, division in our country that seems somehow insurmountable, people hurting other people. These are things that are not worth celebrating, but those realities don't take away from the truth that there are things worth celebrating. Jesus lived in a real time, in a real place where things weren't all right, and yet still, he said, throw a party because it's worth celebrating when someone comes home. Just because things aren't all right doesn't mean things are all wrong either. God's still moving and he's still changing lives and he's still showing his grace and that's worth celebrating. Uh, at our last beach baptism, a guy came up to me, I only, didn't really know him, but he comes up to me and he, and he says, um, I have not done things the right way and I'm kind of still a mess and I don't have it all figured out but I need to start. Can I get baptized? I was like, yeah, let's start. That's worth celebrating. A couple months ago, a guy shot me an email. An email, this was crazy. He shot me an email and said, hey, I'm moving to town. I just went through something that was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty horrific. I went through a car crash and it's got me thinking about life. I'm not a Christian, uh, but I, I don't know. I need to figure some things out. If I come to your church, would I be welcome? It's like, yeah, you'd be welcome. Please come. And so he came and, and he was like, I, I don't have a Bible. You guys read the Bible. Can you show me what that is? And so I gave him a Bible, told him to start with the gospel of, of Mark. And over time, he gets into a Summit Connect group. He just starts gathering with people because he's like, I, I kind of like these people. And so they were talking one night about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, about who Jesus is, that he came to, to pay the penalty for everywhere we fall short so that we can be right with God. And he goes, I believe that. And so a couple days later, he talks to somebody uh, out in the lobby in, in a way only that he could say it. He goes, well, I guess I got all saved up, uh, which was awesome. It's absolutely worth celebrating. About six months ago, a lady came here, uh, and she was so honest and in a lot of pain, and she talked to me, and she said, um, I've been hurt bad by people that aren't supposed to hurt you. And I was hurt by a church that I didn't think would ever hurt me and I don't really trust people, and I don't really trust the church, but I'm so lonely, and I just need to be around people who are moving in the right direction, and I need to be here. That's worth celebrating. Those things are happening here. God is moving, and he is changing lives, and it's absolutely worth celebrating. Jesus describes a party that is thrown when this insignificant lost coin gets found, and he's trying to remind us how much people are worth. See, a drachma is only worth what people say it's worth. But Jesus here in this parable is saying, you want to know how much people are worth? They're worth my very life. I'll give everything for people. If people matter that much to him, they should matter some to us. Every single one of them. We're called to see the value in people. We're called to go looking for people who are hurting, who need to know the truth of the gospel. And we're called to celebrate when we see God moving in people's lives. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's this kingdom thing we're invited into. And I know I've talked for a while, and I want to talk to one specific type of people in, in the room. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus... As always, we're really glad that you are here. But if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody invited you. If that's the case, the person sitting next to you who invited you is probably like, oh, sorry, I invited you on this week. Um, 
but I just want to talk to you for a second. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, you may have a question. And it's an honestly, it's a good question. You may be asking, am I some kind of project? Like, is that what this whole church thing is about? Just people being projects? Like, I don't follow Jesus, so you're going to come after me and, and until I start following Jesus. Am I just a project? No, you're not. But you are loved. And you deserve to know it. You deserve to know that the God of the universe cares so much about you that when there was distance between you and him, he said, I'll come the whole way. And Jesus showed up and he lived and he loved and he died so that that gap could be closed. That's what the cross is all about. And when we have in our lives these moments where we think, you know what, I don't think I'll ever measure up. I don't think I'll ever be good enough. And I don't think things will ever get better. We can remember that Jesus defeated death. That's what the resurrection is all about. You are loved that much and you deserve to know it. I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're hearing this. And I hope that you'll be open to the idea of wrestling with, is this true or not? Because you may be wondering, okay, well, what's my first step? What's step one? And you may have heard or you may believe, okay, I gotta change my behavior. I heard it, the, the out of bounds. I don't wanna be out of bounds. That's not the first step. The first step, it all starts with knowing the one who came looking for you. You may hear the word lost and it may sound derogatory to you. Like, I don't wanna be lost. I don't want anybody to call me lost. Look, in this case, this story is telling us that being lost just means there's somebody dying to find you. You're loved that much. So the first step Move toward the one who came looking for you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and, uh, and you want to be a part of this kingdom thing, this, this thing that Jesus is talking about in these parables, let me give maybe some practical steps. And, and they're all going to be about prayer. And I don't know how your prayer life is. Mine's never as good as I would like it to be. But it's going to start with prayer because remember, this, this kingdom, this joining God in his kingdom doesn't start with a changed mind. It starts with a willing heart. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about prayer as our action step. So for the next five weeks, here, here's, if you want to be a part of this kingdom thing in response to this, for the next five weeks, that's how long this series is. I want you to pray every single day for a single individual, a single individual. And I know that will be disruptive, but the parables are meant to disrupt us, and so we're going to engage in that being disrupted. Pray for someone every single day. And here's the person I want you to pray for. The person that pops in your mind when you, when you think of someone who uh, isn't sitting next to you, but deserves to know how much they're loved by God, they, but they don't know it. Pray for them every single day. Pray that they would be open to the idea that they are loved by a good God who loves them. Don't pray for somebody who goes to another church. Don't pray for somebody out of town. Pray for somebody that you come in contact with every single day for five weeks. Pray also for yourself. Pray that you would be willing to enter into their story, to listen, to have conversations, to hear where they are, and then when there's opportunity, show them love and grace, the type of love and grace that Jesus shows us. That's your task every day for five weeks. And when I said that, if, if I said the one person that is far from God, near to you, that you wanna see sitting next to you, if you're like, I can't think of anybody, then here's what I want you to do for five weeks if you'd be willing. Pray that your heart would be changed and turn toward the things that break Jesus's heart. He was desperate to get people back. That's why he told this story. That's why he went to the cross. 
And if our heart isn't aligned with that, then we're missing out on what we're made for. So just pray that your heart will be changed for five weeks. If you pray for that person or pray that your heart will be changed every day for five weeks, I believe that our community would look different because people would hear the truth of how much they are loved. And that's what we're here for. Jesus told this really simple story, two verses about a coin. It explained why he lives the way he lives and it also explained the kingdom he came to bring and it gives us clarity about how valuable people are, but it also reminds us why we're here so that whoever and whatever is lost can be found. Let's be a part of that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who cares so much for us that you don't uh, give us uh, ideas to, to just live by. You enter in to people's lives and tell stories in a way that they can understand, even if they're difficult to digest. Thank you for telling this story about how valuable we are, but about how valuable people are about how important it is for us to go looking for people who need to know your love and how important it is to celebrate when people come home. I pray that we wouldn't forget the significance of this story and this call on you or from you on us, your people. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.